Cinderella story. Did you know that? A Cinderella story in the Bible. How many of you had thought about that before? Nobody. Well, I'm going to have to prove it then. I guess I have my work cut out for me this morning. Uh, I mentioned that to somebody. They said, yeah, there's a Cinderella story in the Bible. The the book of Esther. Well, yeah, that's okay. I can see some of that. But this one's even better. Now, some of you are here this morning. Uh, just because you knew I was going to be teaching from the Song of Solomon, you're thinking, uh-huh, let's see what pastor's going to do with that. Well, you didn't expect me to start with Cinderella. We started G-rated. We'll see where it goes from here. It's funny. The Disney princesses, Cinderella, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, uh, uh, the, uh, the Mermaid, all of these. All of these have that, that longing for love and this, this tragedy and hopelessness. It's impossible, and yet there's some miraculous intervention and change. And there's parallels there, you see, to God's story. We were hopeless, and God loved us. And yes, it was miraculous that God himself would break into human history. God himself, and he gives us pictures, just like you could say, well, Cinderella is something like that. God gives us pictures. In fact, one of the most basic of human relationships, God has given to us to experience so that out of that relationship, we would have a framework to understand some things about our relationship with God. So the book that's before us today, the Song of Solomon, as we drive through Route 66, we come to, as we're going through the wisdom books right now, as we do that, we come to the Song of Solomon. Now, Job tells you that man is made for trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's pretty discouraging. And yet, God vindicates it. It will be worth it all, okay? Psalms teaches us that we were, you and I were made for worship. Proverbs gives, gives us in the midst of this world where you don't know what could happen still, this is how you can live wisely. God's way does work, even though there, it might not turn out just the way you expected immediately right now. Ecclesiastes says, try as you might, you still won't find what you're looking for here. And yet, Song of Solomon tells us the end of that wisdom wisdom literature in a beautiful way, in a musical way, tells us that there is something that we can enjoy in life that does teach us something about the fullness that we have yet to enter into in our relationship with God. How do you approach the Song of Solomon? Well, From the Reformation period forward, prior to that even, but especially from there forward, as people begin to turn back to the Bible rather than tradition and say, well, what does the Bible have to tell us about life and about relationship with God? They still came to the Song of Solomon and they said, hmm, I'm reading it, but it can't be about that. That is scandalous. It cannot be about that. It must be about something else. And so they came up with an elaborate allegory. Well, it's really about the, the relationship between God and the church or maybe between God and an individual believer. And that's all it's about is just that allegory. There's something about that truth there, but primarily, folks. Now, now that came out of the medieval area, era where, for instance, the relationship between a, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, were only for procreation. It wasn't for pleasure. It wasn't to be enjoyed. It was to be something that was endured for the procreation of the human race, to, to, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And nothing more than that. 
There was this hanging on of a Greek ideal about things that are related to the flesh, the material world, and our own bodies are bad. In fact, spirituality was concerned with we will isolate ourselves away from the world and we will eat little food and even the food we will, we will wear coarse and uncomfortable clothes and even the food we eat will put bitter herbs in it so that it doesn't taste good. Oh, what a miserable way to live. Life is meant to be enjoyed. And, and our relationships are meant to be enjoyed. And there's a relationship that we've been given called marriage that we as Christians today say that we value. In fact, when you start messing with marriage, we, we, we get concerned about that. We want to respond to that. And we say it's because we value marriage. The marriage is, is, an, is, a, is a core relationship that God has given us. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Or are we just bothered and offended and angered by what other people think about marriage? Do we really see it as core in value? How do our marriages look then? Do they demonstrate that value? Do we, do we show in our, in our lives rather than by our words how much we value and esteem marriage? What kind of marriage? Is there more to marriage than just that relationship properly defined? The Song of Solomon affirms. This Song of Songs, it's called. It's called the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. And think of that in terms of, it's a song of many songs that are sung. It's a musical. And yet, it's the greatest of songs. That Song of Songs is a wordplay in Hebrew that gives a, it's a superlative. It's a better than any other song. This is the best of songs. The best of songs is a collection of love songs love poetry between a man and a woman. I have given you in the, back of your, in the back of your notes, I've given you a structure that outlines and points to the center. Think of it like a wedding musical. You have the meeting, you have the uh, courtship, you have the engagement or the proposal, you have the engagement or betrothal period, you have the wedding and the, the wedding night. And then you have the relationship continuing after there in ways that parallel the approach into the union. And so certainly that, that, that marriage night, that, that, that um, completion of the union is, is the high point of the song because this is all about marriage. And so as you read through the book, that, that guideline, that uh, outline might, might help you make sense of some Bible translations as well have, have added in. They've, they look at the Hebrew verb forms in particular or pronouns and they've identified, okay, is a, is, a, is a male voice speaking here or is a female voice speaking? Is it the man or the woman? There's a lot of dialogue back and forth and then there's also a chorus or a narration parts that are spoken into in the midst of the musical. And so some Bibles like the ESV has done this, the NIV has done this, a few others, they've added in some headings, he and she or soprano and tenor to help you know man or woman who's speaking and that can help you to make sense of the story as it goes. Otherwise, you can get jumbled because we're not seeing this as it might have been sung or portrayed. We're just reading it as the words on a page and it can be a little more confusing. So there's the structure and that'll help you as we go. But, well, this is a song that's worth getting into. So let's, let's go ahead and do that. Turn with me to Song of Solomon and chapter 1. You find as you go in here that they, they talk and sing a lot. There's a lot of dialogue back and forth. And if I could take one thing away, right at the beginning, men, it's this. Words matter. 
Paul wrote in Colossians, let your words be with grace, gracious words, as if they were seasoned like with salt. You know, words that enhance the flavor of what it is that you want to say and communicate. There is a lot of effort put into the words. And as you read some of his words or hers, you say, well, I don't know about you, Pastor, but in our relationship, we, we don't talk like this. Well, you might not talk like this, but words matter. Words have power. Your words spoken to another in any relationship matter far more than you know. Whether those words come across as meaning very little or whether those words come across as communicating a lot. Words matter. It's a book of words. It's a musical of words. They sing a lot. Let's look at some of those words. I'll jump into verse 2 here of chapter word. 1, let him... Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Like, like uh, she likes his aftershave. Your name is oil poured out, smooth. Therefore, the maidens, when you read virgins here, think of the maidens, the young ladies, the eligible ladies. They love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And she says, I am very dark, but lovely. She is deeply tanned. She has a tanned complexion. Where did that come from? I am, I am like the tents of Kedar. They were dark goatskin covered, rough, uh, not uh, fine cloths, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze on me because I am dark. Don't stare because the sun has looked upon me or stared upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me a keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. What is she saying? I'm a peasant girl. My brothers didn't care for me. They, I wasn't one of the sons who would share the inheritance, and so they just pushed me out to, to keep the gardens, to tend the vineyards, and I haven't been able to look after myself. I haven't been able to look after my beauty. She is Cinderella. You see? You think, oh, she's darkly tanned. We think about that, and, that, and that's attractive. No, in that, in that culture, the people who were darkly tanned by the sun were the people that had to work out in the fields. They were not this soft and luxurious woman who could stay indoors and be looked after all day long and pampered. Those were the desirable women. So according to the culture, she was not attractive. She was not beautiful. She was Cinderella. Okay? It's an interesting point. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. She wants to meet him. She has seen him. She wants to meet him. How can they get together? And there's some play on that on how they're going to meet together. There's some more dialogue between the two of them. Where should I go from here? Let me see. Hmm, hmm. Oh, let's, let's hear some of his words. As a lily among the brambles, chapter 2, verse 2, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved, she says, among the young men. You see, there is nobody more beautiful than her. There is nobody more wonderful, like eating apples compared to chewing on pine cones. That's my beloved. See the word pictures here? This is fun poetry. Oh, they are hooked on each other, aren't they? That's a sweet thing. So, shall, so it should be. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She's getting to know him. Don't make more of it than that. They're not married yet. 
He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me. He didn't conquer her. His banner over her was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head. His right hand is embracing me. They are, they are getting to know one another here. And it gets a little close now. It's getting a little scandalous. There's a warning inserted. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, which are imagery all through the love poem, by love itself, as graceful as a doe or gazelle. I adjure you, I urge you, by love itself, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This little refrain occurs Four times there's a warning. Three times it's that exact same warning. Do not stir up love until it pleases. Don't rush love. Don't arouse it before it's time. That's an important message. If we're going to have a song that is going to celebrate love, it's going to celebrate relationship, and between a man and a woman, their marriage and their physical attraction to one another. And at times, folks, I will not lie, it gets graphic. I don't know if I'll read some of those this morning. But it does. It celebrates that human love and attraction. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's one of those things that should be within the proper context, shouldn't it? Love is a wonderful and powerful thing, and the physical attraction... And the physical desire, one for another, is to be enjoyed. God has given that to us. But I warn you, do not arouse love before it's time. Don't arouse love out of season. Don't arouse love before it's ready. That's what's being warned of here. And the, and the time is the center of the, of the song. The time is that high watermark that we get to in, in, at the start of chapter 5. Where they, where they have been engaged, they have been betrothed, and now his chariot returns for her. And there, there now the, there's the wedding feast, and then there's the consummation of the marriage. That's the time. That's the right time. You see, love and physical attraction is a wonderful thing. And it should be not merely occurring or endured. It should be celebrated in every marriage relationship in the sweet and tender ways as is described in this psalm. But don't toy with it. Don't carelessly treat this beautiful thing. It's electricity. I, I, I was in electronics in the Air Force, so I understand electricity pretty well. Electricity is a wonderful thing. Aren't you glad? How many of you are glad for electricity? Do you have electricity in your own homes? Do you use electricity? You do look at that. Electricity is a wonderful thing. When it stays in the conductors, when it stays within those wires, when electricity stays within the boundaries that it's supposed to be conducted along, it's wonderful. It, it, it heats our toast. It makes our coffee. It does many wonderful things this morning. But when electricity gets out of those wires, when electricity gets out of those boundaries, what happens? It can become, it's still a very powerful thing, but now it can be a destructive thing. The Columbia River. It's a beautiful river. It's a powerful river. That electricity that I talk of, it, 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 it is here in our midst because there's a Columbia River and there are dams on that river. There are hydroelectric projects. And when the water flows down that river and through those dams, it's a wonderful thing and it creates electricity and we all enjoy it. And you had your toast. Well, you had your coffee this morning anyway. There we are. But what happens when that river flows over its banks? It's still a river and it's still powerful. 
But now the same thing that was a very good thing and a wonderful thing becomes a destructive thing. Very powerful. So power for good, but power also for destruction. Talked about Johnny Cash last night. Wonderful thing about love and and the physical attraction between a man and a woman, but when that does not occur and become fulfilled in in the safe place that God gave for us, then it, be, it can become a destructive thing. And it can become a cause by which people ruin lives and throw something good away. One of the things that, that um, the song tells us, well, first couple of points. It tells us to pursue relational intimacy. They want to know each other. They spend time together in this psalm. There, there's a relational intimacy. They are closer than friends. That starts first. And there's also there's a physical attraction. And they are going to pursue a, a further intimacy. There's a relational intimacy, first of all. And that relational intimacy is headed toward a relational identity. Marriage. I, I throw that relational identity that she's going to be his wife. He is going to be her husband. That is going to open the way to a greater celebration that is anticipated already and is going to be fulfilled in the song. The celebration physically of their love for one another. But that relational identity has something more behind it as well. Cinderella's life changes because she is not only in love with the prince, she's not only married to him and they are sweethearts, but she's also identified with him. I am my beloved's and he is mine. I belong to someone and no other. And the sweetness that is there and the trust that is there and the safety that is there in that relationship, pursuing intimate relationship first, and then out of that pursuing an identity together. I am my beloved's and she is mine, is the way the song puts it. That identity together opens the way for a transparency and a vulnerability to truly unite and and entrust myself to another. You see? And that identity as well, that identity, the princess becomes the king's, or the peasant girl becomes the king. The, the, The girl, Cinderella, becomes the prince's bride. And because she's identified with him, her whole life is now changed. And we'll see some spiritual dynamics of that along the way as well. As we go further in the song, we get into about verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, there's a, there's a, I told you there's a proposal coming. Let's get to verse 8 of chapter 2. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Can I tell you the first time I asked my sweet wife out, I didn't propose that night, but the first time I asked her out, I called her up, I was, I was really scared. And she said, yes. It was, it, was, it, was, it was an old phone. It was like a party line. It was one of those dial phones, you know. And, and it hung on the wall. Set the scene years ago, ages ago. The last century. And, 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 and she said, yes. And I hung up the phone. 
And I was literally jumping and bouncing around the living room. I was, I get this gazelle leaping thing here. That's what it was. And Julie's saying, oh my, what is she? Okay, I'll, I'll move on. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows. Now, he's not a peeping Tom. Don't read that into it. But, but as if a deer were in the garden looking in, as, as, as like he wanted to come in. Her beloved is like that. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Would you come away with me? There's the proposal. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, it's spring, and everybody knows what spring brings. Everybody knows that a May wedding is in the works. And here it comes, they, they are engaged. Maybe, maybe verse 16 of chapter 2 then is her acceptance. My beloved is mine and I am his, he grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft of the mountains. There's a great imagery. They're engaged, but hey, you, you, you better go for now. You know, we might do something we shouldn't if, we, if we're not careful now. But, but the, the, the engagement would happen. The betrothal period would begin. He would now go away and he'd prepare a home for the two of them. Then there would be this procession that the groom would come back to receive his bride and then bring her and her party back to the, to, to the wedding feast on an unannounced day. Some of the background of John 14 is using that, uh, using that imagery of a Jewish wedding. I, will, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am there you may be also. It's wedding imagery that Jesus was using in John 14. It's what's happening here. And then there's a waiting, there's a, there's a longing during the betrothal period. In, in chapter 3, she, she desires him, she longs for him. And they're to being together. And you see that in the, in the dream. I'm not going to go into all the details just because of time. But, but there's an anticipation of what they're going to have. Look at, look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, we could be getting into the, in, towards the wedding ceremony by this point. But some of this poetry, man, we could learn something from this. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. You tried that one, men? Oh, honey, your hair is like a flock of goats. Yeah, that'll work. Go for it. Leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all which bear twins. Look at that. Your teeth, honey, they're just like sheep. What are they, fuzzy? Well, they, they, they each have a twin, as the Hebrew literally. So what that means is there's one on this side and that side that match up. You know, her teeth are, are nicely matched and they're even and they're bright white, of course, just come up from washing. You know, there's no, no coffee stain there. Okay? She's got all her teeth. Okay, guys, it's an important thing to look for when you're looking for a bride. She does have all of her teeth. None are missing. There you go. It's important. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. Oh, num- verse 4, your neck is like the Tower of David. Oh, honey, your neck. It is like a tower. She- I mean, this girl's like a giraffe. <laughs> or, or is it that solid? Is she really stiff-necked? I'm not, I'm not sure what that means, but I- it's... it's, it's- Verse 7, you are altogether lovely. 
You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. You see, they're in the wedding now. My bride is only used here in chapter, chapter 4 and again in chapter 5. This is, the, this is the high point of the song. And now that, there's that wedding language expressed. How, and and uh, how, how they are. And, okay, we're, we're moving now towards, towards the wedding night. And uh, there's, there's an invitation here. There's a reminder to us. Well, verses 9 and 10, my sister, my bride, verses 9 and 10, you cap- look, at the, look at verse 9. You captivate my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Is he hooked or what? This poor bloke doesn't have a chance, does he? No. But isn't that beautiful? See, it's supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be like that. There's, there's, a, there's a respect, there's, a mute, there's an admiration and a respect in the relationship. My sister, my bride. I don't want her merely just for me. No. I want her for her. She is precious. Oh, that I could be identified with her. And vice versa. You see, the same kind of respect and adoration occurs both ways in this, in this, in this song as we, as, as we read through it. Verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let, and she says now, this is after the, this is after the wedding, And she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Those are all just the the fruitful, the bountiful, the the pleasure. The whole land was to be a land of milk and honey. So don't, don't read more into it than you need to, but just it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's fulfilling, it's satisfied. This has God's blessing this relationship that they have come together in. And there's this other voice. It's, a, it's not necessarily the same uh, girl's chorus. Now it could be a narrator voice. It could be the voice of God himself to this couple. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Be carried away in this passion that you as a couple should enjoy. You know, there's something about 1 Corinthians 7 here that tells us that, that a marriage relationship is supposed to be this way. That the, that the, that, that the man's body does not belong to himself. He, he gives it to his wife. That the, the wife's body does not belong to herself, but she gives it to the husband. They are for one another. And it's not merely for, for procreation and having children. It's not only to resist temptation. Well, that's an important factor of that. Sometimes we in the church today, in reaction to our oversexed society, we have minimized the value and the beauty of this relationship. It is meant to be for pleasure and enjoyment within those boundaries, but three times the warning. Three times the warning. I adjure you. Look at chapter 5 and verse 8 again. Even in the midst of the wedding night, O daughters of Jerusalem... No, sorry, that's not, the, that's not the one I was looking for. Just before the wedding, there's the warning again. I think it's in chapter 3. Oh, now I'm not finding it. Chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it's time, until it pleases, until it's season. Can I warn you of that again? These 
passions are intended to be strong. And because they are intended to be strong, we have to, be, we have to guard ourselves to keep them within the right place, to keep them within the right channels. Because if you don't, if you play with this, if you toy with this thing, because it is very powerful, you will be swept away by those currents overflowing the banks. There's destruction in the path of power misused. But when it is used rightly, enjoying God's gift of marital intimacy. When it's used rightly as it ought to be, there is divine blessing and sanction. God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. Men and women, young men and women not married yet. Some of you are in that category this morning. Guard yourselves. Reserve yourselves for this one unique and special relationship that when you come together, you are able to present yourselves one to another. And you say, well, I have not kept myself pure. There are things that, are, that have gone in the past that I cannot undo. Well, then start from here. Start from now. I will, anticipating God's promise, recognizing what he has made me for, to use my body as a, as, a, as a temple of God, to honor him with it, and to find life as God then has given it for me, rather than trying to figure my own way into destruction. From here, I'll confess the past to God. I will trust God who has said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll allow him to, to wash that away from me. No guilt held over me. And I'll allow him to purge that out of my mind in ways that it doesn't haunt this future relationship that God has for me. Because I want to experience some of this blessing. And this blessing is important for us to experience because we are from it to anticipate a greater relationship. There's a, isn't it interesting? How this, there, there's a lot of garden language used in the Song of Solomon. They are together in the garden a lot. And there's apple trees and there's fruit trees and there's honeybees and there's all kinds of garden. There's, there's, there's uh, flowers and there's... Um, I forget some of them, but there's lilies and so on, and there's all this garden. Isn't it interesting? When God began the story, it began in a garden. It began with a wedding in a garden, didn't it? Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, humanity begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve, in a garden. It is not good for man to be alone, and he made a, help, a helper, a compliment for him, that they would be together. And then all the way at the other end of the book, at the end of Route 66, when we come to it, the book of Revelation is going to close with a, a wedding in a garden. The marriage feast of the Lamb has come, and the bride, the church, has made herself ready. There is a picture, there is an image in this thing called marriage, why we guard it, why we value it, why we should live it out and enjoy all of its fullness, why we should pursue that. Your marriage is worth pursuing because your marriage is intended to give you a framework for understanding something about a deeper, fuller relationship with the God who made us. Now, don't take that in the wrong way. Let's not turn this into Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You know, there was a song that was well known uh, um, in, in, uh, several years ago. Debbie Boone, I think, sang it. You light up my life, you give me... I, I, I wasn't going to sing this morning. 
You give me hope to carry on. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. For you light up my life. It can't be wrong because it feels right. And you don't know, is she talking about Jesus or is she talking about this guy? You, you can't tell in the song. And part of that is very appropriate in that one relationship pictures another. But don't go too far with the analogy. I know sometimes when, me as a guy, I think of this whole imagery of the church as the bride of Christ. And I, I get a little uncomfortable to some extent with that. But if the relationship and the whole identity together, the friendship together, the two being one in relationship is as it should be. That's what God says. So this marriage thing, we, we, we taste, we have a foreshadowing. We, as it's been said, nibble around the edges of what our relationship with God is intended to be. We have got a deeper, of the, a, a, an image of the deepest and fullest of human relationships at its best, at its ideal in our eternity with God will be something like the fullness of that kind of a relationship. Okay? So my marriage is important then. Men, women, how we live out and deepen and pursue and grow our relationship matters because this is where I worship. This is also where I worship. In this marriage, how I treat her. How we deepen and grow together, that is how I worship. Can you look at your relationship now, whether married or before you're married? Can you look at this relationship and say, how we conduct ourselves? This, this, this is worship. This qualifies as worship. I am living in God's light, and I am, I am living out something I know about God in this relationship. Does it qualify in worship in that way? It's, it's intended to. That's why, that's why the Bible uses that image. I mentioned John 14, that imagery already. Matthew 25, the, the uh, parable of the, of the virgins and the, and, the, and, the, and the bridegroom comes and some of those maidens have, have not been ready. The, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says to the church, I have espoused you. I have betrothed you. You are engaged through his ministry of them believing in Christ. They are engaged to one bridegroom. That's the picture that's used. And so the, the bride continues to prepare for the day when they will be together and the relationship will be complete. And she keeps herself faithfully for him and no other. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Again, there's that image. It's a beautiful image. Our, our marriage, the marriage relationship. Now you say, well, I'm not married, some of you. Maybe I'm not going to marry. What's here for me? Well, the Bible honors that as well. Some of the better known characters of the Bible, either we know nothing about their marriage or we know they were not married, like like Daniel, for instance. So the Bible is not telling us that the only way you can know God is through marriage. No. But there's something about that imagery that God uses to explain himself to us. It's language he's given us. So you can look around and hopefully there are marriages that help you make sense of some of those categories. Don't look down on them. Paul says, hey, you can give yourself more to the Lord's service in this short life if you're not married. 
But don't look down on others who are married and need to care for that relationship. Learn from them as a pattern by which your greater relationship can grow something like as you pursue that relationship with God. And we anticipate the future together. Revelation chapter 6, or rather 19, verse 6. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for a musical that tells us something about romance. Lord, this whole story of redemption that is found in your word is a romance. It is a love story. You have loved us with an everlasting love. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I would pray first of all, Lord, that if there are some here this morning that feel like they want to know something of your love, your love that is found through faith in Jesus Christ, Father, that this morning might be the morning. They would come forward, Lord, even now and, and, and seek somebody to pray with them that they might know Jesus as Savior. But Father, as well, I think of so many married couples in our midst. Lord, perhaps there's someone here this morning, there are many here this morning that would say, oh, we want our, our, we want our marriage to, to go the next step in being worship of God. We want to deepen our relationship so that others could look in on this marriage and see something about God's love there. Oh, Lord, would you help us to do that? Would you help us together to do that as a family of God that is seeking your glory? Lord, show your transforming grace as we heard it before. Show it in this place. Show it in the place of our marriages. Lord, that you might be honored and glorified, that others might know you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As the ushers come forward to, uh, to receive our offer.